Section 25 of The Common Reader. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Arden. The Common Reader by Virginia Woolf. The Modern Essay. As Mr. Rees truly says, it is unnecessary to go profoundly into the history and origin of the essay, whether it derives from Socrates or Sarani the Persian, since, like all living things, its present is more important than its past. Moreover, the family is widely spread, and while some of its representatives have risen in the world and wear their coronets with the best, others pick up a precarious living in the gutter near Fleet Street. The form, too, admits variety. The essay can be short or long, serious or trifling, about God and Spinoza, or about Turtles and Cheapside. But as we turn over the pages of these five little volumes, containing essays written between 1817 and 1920, certain principles appear to control the chaos, and we detect in the short period under review something like the progress of history. Of all forms of literature, however, the essay is the one which least calls for the use of long words. The principle which controls it is simply that it should give pleasure. The desire which impels us when we take it from the shelf is simply to receive pleasure. Everything in an essay must be subdued to that end. It should lay us under a spell with its first word, and we should only wake, refreshed, with its last. In the interval we may pass through the most various experiences of amusement, surprise, interest, indignation. We may soar to the heights of fantasy with lamb, or plunge to the depths of wisdom with bacon, but we must never be roused. The essay must lap us about and draw its curtain across the world. So great a feat is seldom accomplished, though the fault may well be as much on the reader's side as on the writer's. Habit and lethargy have dulled his palate. A novel has a story, a poem rhyme. But what art can the essayist use in these short lengths of prose to sting us wide awake and fix us in a trance which is not sleep, but rather an intensification of life, a basking, with every faculty alert, in the sun of pleasure? He must know, that is the first essential, how to write. His learning may be as profound as Mark Pattison's, but in an essay it must be so fused by the magic of writing that not a fact juts out, not a dogma tears the surface of the texture. Macaulay in one way, Froude in another, did this superbly over and over again. They have blown more knowledge into us in the course of one essay than the innumerable chapters of a hundred textbooks. But when Mark Pattison has to tell us, in the space of thirty-five little pages, about Montaigne, we feel that he had not previously assimilated M. Groon. M. Groon was a gentleman who once wrote a bad book. M. Groon and his book should have been embalmed for our perpetual delight in amber. But the process is fatiguing. It requires more time and perhaps more temper than Pattison had at his command. He served M. Groon up raw, and he remains a crude berry among the cook meats, upon which our teeth must grate forever. Something of the sort applies to Matthew Arnold and a certain translator of Spinoza. Literal truth-telling and finding fault with a culprit for his good are out of place in an essay, where everything should be for our good and rather for eternity than for the March number of the Fortnightly Review. But if the voice of the scold should never be heard in this narrow plot, there is another voice which is as a plague of locusts, the voice of a man stumbling drowsily among loose words, clutching aimlessly at vague ideas. The voice, for example, of Mr. Hudden in the following passage. Add to this 
that his married life was very brief, only seven years and a half, being unexpectedly cut short, and that his passionate reverence for his wife's memory and genius, in his own words, a religion, was one which, as he must have been perfectly sensible, he could not make to appear otherwise than extravagant, not to say an hallucination, in the eyes of the rest of mankind, and yet that he was possessed by an irresistible yearning to attempt to embody it in all the tender and enthusiastic hyperbole, of which it is so pathetic to find a man who gained his fame by his dry light a master, and it is impossible not to feel that the human incidents in Mr. Mill's career are very sad. A book could take that blow, but it sinks an essay. A biography in two volumes is indeed the proper depositary, for there, where the license is so much wider, and hints and glimpses of outside things make part of the feast, we refer to the old type of Victorian volume. These yawns and stretches hardly matter, and have indeed some positive value of their own. But that value, which is contributed by the reader, perhaps illicitly, in his desire to get as much into the book from all possible sources as he can, must be ruled out here. There is no room for the impurities of literature in an essay. Somehow or other, by dint of labor or bounty of nature, or both combined, the essay must be pure, pure like water, or pure like wine, but pure from dullness, deadness, and deposits of extraneous matter. Of all writers in the first volume, Walter Pater best achieves this arduous task, because before setting out to write his essay, notes on Leonardo da Vinci, he has somehow contrived to get his material fused. He is a learned man, but it is not knowledge of Leonardo that remains with us, but a vision, such as we get in a good novel, where everything contributes to bring the writer's conception as a whole before us. Only here, in the essay, where the bounds are so strict and facts have to be used in their nakedness, the true writer like Walter Pater makes these limitations yield their own quality. Truth will give it authority. From its narrow limits he will get shape and intensity, and then there is no more fitting place for some of those ornaments which the old writers loved, and we, by calling them ornaments, presumably despise. Nowadays nobody would have the courage to embark on the once famous description of Leonardo's lady who has learned the secrets of the grave, and has been a diver in deep seas, and keeps their fallen day about her, and trafficked for strange webs with eastern merchants, and as Leda was the mother of Helen of Troy, and as St. Anne, the mother of Mary, the passage is too thumb-marked to slip naturally into the context, but when we come unexpectedly upon the smiling of women and the motion of great waters, or upon full of the refinement of the dead in sad, earth-colored raiment set with pale stones, we suddenly remember that we have ears and we have eyes, and that the English language fills a long array of stout volumes with innumerable words, many of which are of more than one syllable. The only living Englishman who ever looks into these volumes is, of course, a gentleman of Polish extraction, but doubtless our abstention saves us much gush, much rhetoric, much high-stepping and cloud-prancing, and for the sake of the prevailing sobriety and hard-headedness, we should be willing to barter the splendor of Sir Thomas Brown and the vigor of Swift. Yet, if the essay admits more properly than biography or fiction of sudden boldness and metaphor, and can be polished till every atom of its surface shines. There are dangers in that, too. We are soon in sight of ornament. Soon the current, which is the lifeblood of literature, runs slow. And instead of sparkling and flashing, or moving with a quieter impulse, which has a deeper excitement, words coagulate together in frozen sprays, 
which, like the grapes on a Christmas tree, glitter for a single night, but are dusty and garish the day after. The temptation to decorate is great, where the theme may be of the slightest. What is there to interest another in the fact that one has enjoyed a walking tour, or has amused oneself by rambling down Cheapside and looking at the turtles in Mr. Sweeting's shop window? Stevenson and Samuel Butler chose very different methods of exciting our interest in these domestic themes. Stevenson, of course, trimmed and polished and set out his matter in the traditional 18th century form. It is admirably done, but we cannot help feeling anxious, as the essay proceeds, lest the material may give out under the craftsman's fingers. The ingot is so small, the manipulation so incessant, and perhaps that is why the peroration, to sit still and contemplate, to remember the faces of women without desire, to be pleased by the great deeds of men without envy, to be everything and everywhere in sympathy, and yet content to remain where and what you are, has the sort of insubstantiality which suggests that by the time he got to the end, he had left himself nothing solid to work with. Butler adopted the very opposite method. Think your own thoughts, he seems to say, and speak them as plainly as you can. These turtles in the shop window, which appear to leak out of their shells through heads and feet, suggest a fatal faithfulness to a fixed idea. And so, striding unconcernedly from one idea to the next, we traverse a large stretch of ground. Observe that a wound in the solicitor is a very serious thing. That Mary, Queen of Scots, wears surgical boots and is subject to fits near the horseshoe in Tottenham Court Road. Take it for granted that no one really cares about Eschelus. And so with many amusing anecdotes and some profound reflections, reached the peroration, which is that, as he had been told not to see more in Cheapside than he could get into twelve pages of the Universal Review, he had better stop. And yet obviously Butler is at least as careful of our pleasure as Stevenson, and to write like oneself and call it not writing is a much harder exercise in style than to write like Addison and call it writing well. But, however much they differ individually, the Victorian essayists yet had something in common. They wrote at greater length than is now usual, and they wrote for a public which had not only time to sit down to its magazine seriously, but a high, if peculiarly Victorian, standard of culture by which to judge it. It was worthwhile to speak out upon serious matters in an essay, and there was nothing absurd in writing as well as one possibly could when, in a month or two, the same public which had welcomed the essay in a magazine would carefully read it once more in a book. But a change came from a small audience of cultivated people to a larger audience of people who were not quite so cultivated. The change was not altogether for the worse. In Volume 3, we find Mr. Burrell and Mr. Beerbohm. It might even be said that there was a reversion to the classic type, and that the essay by losing its size and something of its sonority was approaching more nearly the essay of Addison and Lamb. At any rate, there is a great gulf between Mr. Burrell on Carlyle and the essay which one may suppose that Carlyle would have written upon Mr. Burrell. There is little similarity between A Cloud of Pinafores by Max Beerbohm and A Cynic's Apology by Leslie Stephen. But the essay is alive. There is no reason to despair. As the conditions change, so the essayist, most sensitive of all plants to public opinion, adapts himself and if he is good, makes the best of the change. And if he is bad, the worst. Mr. Burrell is certainly good. And so we find that, though he has dropped a considerable amount of weight, his attack is much more direct and his movement more supple. 
But what did Mr. Beerbohm give to the essay, and what did he take from it? That is a much more complicated question. For here we have an essayist who has concentrated on the work and is without doubt the prince of his profession. What Mr. Beerbohm gave was, of course, himself. This presence, which has haunted the essay fitfully from the time of Montaigne, had been in exile since the death of Charles Lamb. Matthew Arnold was never to his readers Matt, nor Walter Pater affectionately abbreviated in a thousand homes to Watt. They gave as much, but that they did not give. Thus, sometime in the 90s, it must have surprised readers accustomed to exhortation, information, and denunciation to find themselves familiarly addressed by a voice which seemed to belong to a man no larger than themselves. He was affected by private joys and sorrows, and had no gospel to preach and no learning to impart. He was himself, simply and directly, and himself he has remained. Once again, we have an essayist capable of using the essayist's most proper but most dangerous and delicate tool. He has brought personality into literature, not unconsciously and impurely, but so consciously and purely that we do not know whether there is any relation between Max the essayist and Mr. Beerbohm the man. We only know that the spirit of personality permeates every word that he writes. The triumph is the triumph of style, for it is only by knowing how to write that you can make use in literature of yourself, that self which, while it is essential to literature, is also its most dangerous antagonist. Never to be yourself, and yet always, that is the problem. Some of the essayists in Mr. Rees's collection, to be frank, have not altogether succeeded in solving it. We are nauseated by the sight of trivial personalities decomposing in the eternity of print. As talk, no doubt, it was charming, and certainly the writer is a good fellow to meet over a bottle of beer. But literature is stern. It is no use being charming, virtuous, or even learned and brilliant into the bargain, unless, she seems to reiterate, you fulfill her first condition, to know how to write. This art is possessed to perfection by Mr. Beerbohm, but he has not searched the dictionary for polysyllables. He has not molded firm periods or seduced our ears with intricate cadences and strange melodies. Some of his companions, Henley and Stevenson, for example, are momentarily more impressive. But a cloud of pinafores had in it that indescribable inequality, stir, and final expressiveness which belong to life and to life alone. You have not finished with it because you have read it, any more than friendship is ended because it is time to part. Life wells up and alters and adds. Even things in a bookcase change if they are alive. We find ourselves wanting to meet them again. We find them altered. So we look back upon essay after essay by Mr. Beerbohm, knowing that, come September or May, we shall sit down with them and talk. Yet it is true that the essayist is the most sensitive of all writers to public opinion. The drawing room is the place where a great deal of reading is done nowadays, and the essays of Mr. Beerbohm lie, with an exquisite appreciation of all that the position exacts, upon the drawing room table. There is no gin about, no strong tobacco, no puns, drunkenness, or insanity. Ladies and gentlemen talk together, and some things, of course, are not said. But if it would be foolish to attempt to confine Mr. Beerbohm to one room, it would be still more foolish, unhappily, to make him, the artist, the man who gives us only his best, the representative of our age. There are no essays by Mr. Beerbohm in the fourth or fifth volumes of the present collection. 
His age seems already a little distant, and the drawing room table, as it recedes, begins to look rather like an altar, where, once upon a time, people deposited offerings, fruit from their own orchards, gifts carved with their own hands. Now once more the conditions have changed. The public needs essays as much as ever, and perhaps even more. The demand for the light middle, not exceeding 1,500 words, or in special cases, 1,750, much exceeds the supply. Where Lamb wrote one essay, and Max perhaps writes two, Mr. Belloc, at a rough computation, produces 365. They are very short, it is true. Yet with what dexterity, the practice essayist will utilize his space, beginning as close to the top of the sheet as possible, judging precisely how far to go, when to turn, and how, without sacrificing a hair's breadth of paper, to wheel about and alight accurately upon the last word his editor allows. As a feat of skill, it is well worth watching. But the personality upon which Mr. Belloc, like Mr. Beerbohm, depends, suffers in the process. It comes to us not with the natural richness of the speaking voice, but strained and thin and full of mannerisms and affectations, like the voice of a man shouting through a megaphone to a crowd on a windy day. Little friends, my readers, he says in the essay called An Unknown Country, and he goes on to tell us how there was a shepherd the other day at Finden Fair, who had come from the east by loos with sheep, and who had in his eyes that reminiscence of horizons which makes the eyes of shepherds and of mountaineers different from the eyes of other men. I went with him to hear what he had to say, for shepherds talk quite differently from other men. Happily, this shepherd had little to say, even under the stimulus of the inevitable mug of beer about the unknown country, for the only remark that he did make proves him either a minor poet unfit for the care of sheep, or Mr. Belloc himself masquerading with a fountain pen. That is the penalty which the habitual essayist must now be prepared to face. He must masquerade. He cannot afford the time either to be himself or to be other people. He must skim the surface of thought and dilute the strength of personality. He must give us a worn weekly halfpenny instead of a solid sovereign once a year. But it is not Mr. Belloc only who has suffered from the prevailing conditions. The essays which bring the collection to the year 1920 may not be the best of their author's work, but if we accept writers like Mr. Conrad and Mr. Hudson, who have strayed into essay writing accidentally, and concentrate upon those who write essays habitually, we shall find them a good deal affected by the change in their circumstances. To write weekly, to write daily, to write shortly, to write for busy people catching trains in the morning, or for tired people coming home in the evening, is a heartbreaking task for men who know good writing from bad. They do it, but instinctively draw out of harm's way anything precious that might be damaged by contact with the public, or anything sharp that might irritate its skin. And so, if one reads Mr. Lucas, Mr. Lind, or Mr. Squire in the bulk, one feels that a common grayness silvers everything. They are as far removed from the extravagant beauty of Walter Pater as they are from the intemperate candor of Leslie Stephen. Beauty and courage are dangerous spirits to battle in a column and a half, and thought, like a brown paper parcel in a waistcoat pocket, has a way of spoiling the symmetry of an article. It is a kind, tired, apathetic world for which they write, and the marvel is that they never cease to attempt, at least, to write well. But there is no need to pity Mr. Clutton Brock for this change in the essayist's conditions. 
He has clearly made the best of his circumstances, and not the worst. One hesitates even to say that he has had to make any conscious effort in the matter, so naturally has he affected the transition from the private essayist to the public, from the drawing room to the Albert Hall. Paradoxically enough, the shrinkage in size has brought about a corresponding expansion of individuality. We have no longer the eye of Max and of Lamb, but the we of public bodies and other sublime personages. It is we who go to hear the magic flute, we who ought to profit by it, we, in some mysterious way, who, in our corporate capacity, once upon a time actually wrote it. For music and literature and art must submit to the same generalization, or they will not carry to the farthest recesses of the Albert Hall. That the voice of Mr. Clutton Brock, so sincere and so disinterested, carries such a distance and reaches so many without pandering to the weakness of the mass or its passions must be a matter of legitimate satisfaction to us all. But while we are gratified, I, that unruly partner in the human fellowship, is reduced to despair. I must always think things for himself and feel things for himself, to share them in a diluted form with the majority of well-educated and well-intentioned men and women is for him sheer agony. And while the rest of us listen intently and profit profoundly, I slips off to the woods and the fields and rejoices in a single blade of grass or a solitary potato. In the fifth volume of Modern Essays, it seems, we have got some way from pleasure and the art of writing. But in justice to the essayists of 1920, we must be sure that we are not praising the famous because they have been praised already, and the dead because we shall never meet them wearing spats in Piccadilly. We must know what we mean when we say that they can write and give us pleasure. We must compare them. We must bring out the quality. We must point to this and say it is good because it is exact, truthful, and imaginative. Nay, retire men cannot when they would. Neither will they, when it were reason. But are impatient of privateness, even in age and sickness which require the shadow, like old townsmen that will still be sitting at their street door, though thereby they offer age to scorn, and to this, and say it is bad, because it is loose, plausible, and commonplace. With courteous and precise cynicism on his lips, he thought of quiet virginal chambers, of water singing under the moon, of terraces where taintless music sobbed into the open night, of pure maternal mistresses with protecting arms and vigilant eyes, of fields slumbering in the sunlight, of leagues of ocean heaving under warm tremulous heavens, of hot ports, gorgeous and perfumed. It goes on, but already we are bemused with sound and neither feel nor hear. The comparison makes us suspect that the art of writing has for backbone some fierce attachment to an idea. It is on the back of an idea, something believed in with conviction or seen with precision, and thus compelling words to its shape, that the divers' company which included Lamb and Bacon, and Mr. Beerbohm and Hudson, and Vernon Lee and Mr. Conrad, and Leslie Stephen and Butler and Walter Pater, reaches the farther shore. Very various talents have helped or hindered the passage of the idea into words. Some scrape through painfully, others fly with every wind favoring. But Mr. Belloc and Mr. Lucas and Mr. Lind and Mr. Squire are not fiercely attached to anything in itself. They share the contemporary dilemma, that lack 
of an obstinate conviction which lifts ephemeral sounds through the misty sphere of anybody's language to the land where there is a perpetual marriage a perpetual union vague as all definitions are a good essay must have this permanent quality about it it must draw its curtain round us but it must be a curtain that shuts us in not out end of section twenty five